Bestbookbits.com presents The Snowball, Warren Buffett and the Business of Life book summary. Here is the book recounting the life and times of one of the most respected men in the world, Warren Buffett. The legendary Omaha investor has never written a memoir, but now he has allowed one writer unprecedented access to explore directly with him and with those closest to him his work, opinions, struggles, triumphs, follies, and wisdom. Although the media tracks him consistently, Buffett himself has never told his full life story. His reality is private, especially by celebrity standards. Indeed, while the homespun persona that the public sees is true, as far as it goes, it goes only so far. Warren Buffett is an array of paradoxes. He set out to prove that nice guys can finish first. Over the years, he treated his investors as partners, acted as their steward, and championed honesty as an investor, CEO, board member, essayist, and speaker. At the same time, he became the world's richest man, all from the modest Omaha headquarters of his company, Berkshire Hathaway. None of this fits the term simple. The written summary can be found on our website, bestbookbits.com. So without further ado, I bring the book summary of The Snowball. Humility disarms. I will be talking about pricing stocks, but I will not be talking about predicting their course of action next month or next year. Valuing is not the same as predicting. In the short run, the market is a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. Weight counts eventually, but the votes count in the short term, and it's a very undemocratic way of voting. Unfortunately, they have no literacy test in terms of voting qualifications, as you all learned. Interest rates, the cost of borrowing, are the price of when. They are to finance as gravity is to physics. As interest rates vary, the value of all financial assets, houses, stocks, bonds, changes, as if the price of birds have fluctuated. And that's why sometimes a bird in the hand is better than two birds in the bush, and sometimes two in the bush are better than one in the hand. Praise by name, criticize by category. About Munger and Buffett. They thought alike and had the same fascination with business as a puzzle worth spending a lifetime to solve. Both regarded rationality and honesty as the highest virtues. They liked to ponder the reasons for failure as a way of deducing the rules of success. Tell me where I'm going to die so I won't go there, Charlie Munger. About shoe button complex. My father commuted daily with the same group of men. One of them managed to corner the market in shoe buttons, a really small market, but he had it all. He pontificated on every subject, all subjects imaginable. Cornering the market on shoe buttons made him an expert on everything. Warren and I, Munger, had always sensed it would be a big mistake to behave that way. About Warren's circle of competence. He believed in what he called the circle of competence. Drew a line around himself and stayed within the three subjects of which he would be recognized as an absolute expert. Money, business, and his own life. Warren on the inner scorecard. The big question about how people behave is whether they've got an inner scorecard or an outer scorecard. It helps you if you can be satisfied with an inner scorecard. I always pose it this way. I say, look, would you rather be the world's greatest lover but have everyone think you're the world's worst lover? Or would you rather be the world's worst lover but have everyone think you're the world's greatest lover? Now that's an interesting question. In teaching your kids, I think the lesson they're learning at a very, very early age is what their parents put the emphasis on. If all the emphasis is on what the world's going to think about you, forgetting about how you really behave, you wind up with an outer scorecard. Now my dad, he was a 100% inner scorecard guy. 
He was really a maverick, but he wasn't a maverick for the sake of being a maverick. He just didn't care what other people thought. My dad taught me how life should be lived. I've never seen anybody quite like him. The Buffett family motto, spend less than you make, don't go into debt. By the time Warren entered kindergarten, his hobbies and interests enrolled around numbers. Around age six, he became fascinated by the precision of measuring time in seconds and desperately wanted a stopwatch. He filled the bathtub with water and picked up his marbles. Each had a name. He lined them up on the flat edge of the back of the tub. Then he clicked the stopwatch just as he swept the marbles into the water. They raced down the porcelain slope, clicking and rattling, jumping as they hit the waterline. The marbles chased each other towards the stopper. When the first one hit, Warren punched the stopwatch and declared the winner. His sisters watched him race the marbles over and over, trying to improve their times. The marbles never tired, the stopwatch never erred. And, unlike his audience, Warren never seemed bored by the repetition. He was learning to calculate odds. Warren looked around him. There were opportunities to calculate odds everywhere. The key was to collect information, as much information as you could find. Warren liked anything that involved collecting, counting, and memorizing numbers. He loved to read and spent many hours with books he checked out of the Benson Library. Warren's fairness for minutia continued to develop. By the fifth grade, he had immersed himself in the 1939 World Almanac, which quickly became his favorite book. He memorized the population of every city. He got a contest going on with Stu, his friend over who could name the most world cities with populations over a million. He wanted money. It could make him independent. Then I could do what I wanted to do with my life, and the biggest thing I wanted to do was work for myself. I didn't want other people directing me. The idea of doing what I wanted to do every day was important to me. Enlisting his sister Doris as a partner, he bought three shares of a stock for each of them, costing him $114.75 for his three shares of Cities Service Preferred. I didn't understand the stock very well when I bought it, he says. He knew only that it was a favorite stock that Howard has sold to his customers for years. The market hit a low that June, and Cities Service Preferred plunged from $38.25 to $27 a share. Doris reminded him every day on the way to school that her stock was going down. Warren says he felt terribly responsible. When the stock finally recovered, he sold at $40, netting a $5 profit for two of them. But City Service quickly soared to $202 a share. Warren learned three lessons and would call this episode one of the most important in his life. One reason was not to overly fixate on what he had paid for a stock. The second was not to rush unthinkingly to grab a small profit. And the third was about investing other people's money. If he made a mistake, he might get somebody upset at him. So he didn't want to have the responsibility for anyone else's money unless he was sure he could succeed. One of them books was special, a paperback written by the former salesman Dale Carnegie, enticingly titled How to Win Friends and Influence People. He had discovered it at the age of eight or nine. Warren's heart lifted. He thought he had found the fourth truth. This was a system. He felt so disadvantaged socially that he needed a system to sell himself to people. A system he could learn once and use without having to respond in a new way to each changing situation. But it took numbers to prove that it actually worked. He decided to do a statistical analysis of what happened if he did follow Dale Carnegie's rules and what happened if he didn't.
He tried giving attention and appreciation, and he tried doing nothing or being disagreeable. People around him did not know he was performing experiments on them in silence of his own head, but he watched how they responded. He kept track of his results. Filled with a rising joy, he saw what the numbers proved. The rules worked. Unlike most people who read Carnegie's book and thought, gee, that makes sense, then set the book aside and forgot about it, Warren worked at this project with unusual concentration. He kept coming back to these ideas and using them. Even when he failed and forgot and went for long stretches without applying himself to the system, he returned and resumed practicing in the end. On Warren's skills at horse handicapping. Warren read hundreds of books on horse handicapping. He sent away to a place in Chicago on the North Clark Street where he could get old racing forums, months of them, for very little. They were old, so he wanted them. He would go through them using his handicapping techniques to handicap one day and see the next day how it worked out. He ran tests on his handicapping ability day after day, all these different systems he had in his mind. Warren thought about all the businesses this way. The employees who managed the businesses shared in the earnings that their labors produced, but they were accountable to their owners, and it was the owners who got the gains as the value of the business increased. Of course, if the employees brought stocks themselves, they became owners too, and partners with other capitalists. But no matter how much stock they owned as employees, their job required them to report to the owners how well they had done. Thus, Warren saw a shareholder meeting as a time of accounting for the stewardship of managers. As Graham's seminar approached, Warren started memorizing everything he could to find out about Ben Graham's method, his books, his specific investments, and Graham himself. From Graham's class, Warren took away three main principles. A stock is the right to own a little piece of a business. A stock is worth a certain fraction of what you'll be willing to pay for the whole business. Use a margin of safety. Investing is built on estimates and uncertainty. A wide margin of safety ensures that the effects of good decisions are not wiped out by errors. The way to advance above all is by not retreating. Mr. Market is your servant, not your master. Graham postulated a moody character called Mr. Market. He offers to buy and sell stocks every day, often at prices that don't make sense. Mr. Market's mood should not influence your view of price. However, from time to time, he does offer the chance to buy low and sell high. Warren was a very focused person. He could focus like a spotlight, 24 hours a day, almost seven days a week. I don't know when he slept. He could quote Graham's examples and come up with examples of his own. He haunted the Columbia Library, reading old newspapers for hours on end. I would get these papers from 1929. I couldn't get enough of it. I read everything, not just the business and stock market stories. History is interesting, and there is something about history in a newspaper. Just seeing a place, the stories, even the ads, everything. It takes you into a different world, told by somebody who was an eyewitness, and you were really living in that time. Warren spent hours reading the Moody's and Standard and Poor's manuals, looking for stocks. I learned that it pays to hang around with people better than you are, because you will float upward a little bit, and if you hang around people that behave worse than you, pretty soon you'll start sliding down the pole. It just works that way. I went through the Moody's manuals page by page, 10,000 pages in Moody's Industrial Transportation banks and finance manuals twice. I actually looked at every business, although I didn't look very hard at some. In that first month, he had parked himself in the file room at the Graham Newman 
and began to read through every single piece of paper in every single drawer, an entire room filled with big wooden files. He had learned the value of gathering as much as possible of something scarce. From license plates to nuns' fingerprints to coins and stamps to Union Street Railway and the National American, he had always thought his way. A born collector. You should never, when facing some unbelievable tragedy, let one tragedy increase it into two or three through your failure or will. Charlie Munker, as a very young lawyer, was probably getting $20 an hour. He thought to himself, who's my most valuable client? And he decided it was himself. So he decided to sell himself an hour each day. He did it early in the morning, working on the construction projects and real estate deals. Everyone should do this. Be the client and then work for other people too and sell yourself an hour a day. And he no longer asked people to invest with him. They had to bring it up. It had to be their idea. People not only would have no inkling what he was doing, they had to put themselves in this position. It converted them into enthusiastics for Buffett and reduced the odds of their complaining about anything he did. Instead of asking a favor, he was granting one. People felt indebted to him for taking their money. Making people ask put him psychologically in charge. He was always adding one more thing to his list, but unlike her, Susie Buffett, he never overextended himself. When something new came into his life, something else went out. The two exceptions were money and friends. Buying the right company with the right prospects, inherent industry conditions, management, etc. means the price will take care of itself. This is what causes the cash register to really sing. However, in an infrequent occurrence, and as insights usually are, and of course no insight is required on the quantitative side, the figures should hit you over the head with a baseball bat. So the really big money tends to be made by investors who are right on the qualitative decisions. Warren had strong views about specialization. He defined his special skills as thinking and making money. Warren disciplined himself to maintain his own weight by dangling money in front of his kids. When they were younger, he made out unsigned checks to them for $10,000 and said if he didn't weigh 173 pounds on such and such date, he would sign the checks. Little Susie and Howie went crazy trying to tempt him with ice cream and chocolate cake. But the prospect of giving up pained Warren far more than giving up a treat. He made out those checks over and over, but he never had to sign a single one. They, Buffett and Munger, wanted businesses that would marmalade them with money. Businesses that had some sort of sustainable competitive advantage and could outwit the natural cycle of capital creation and destruction as long as possible. Time is the friend of the wonderful business, the enemy of the mediocre. It's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. Charlie understood this early. I was a slow learner. But now, when buying companies or common stocks, we look for first-class businesses accompanied by first-class managements. That leads right into the related lesson. Good jockeys will do well on a good horse, but not on broken-down nags. When Warren got obsessed with something, especially something new, he could not stop thinking about it or them. This came across to a new person as a wholehearted, flattering, and even overwhelming attentiveness. Walter Annenberg's stance on philanthropy. He thought rich people should give it all away before they died, lest their appointed stewards dishonor their obligations. Buffett had the energy and enthusiasm of a restless teenager. He seemed to remember every fact and figure he had ever read. He fingled people 
into volunteering for tough jobs than assumed they could accomplish miracles. And while remarkably tolerant of others' quirks and flaws, he was less so of the quirks and flaws that cost him money. So eager for results was he, so confident of others' skills, so unaware of how far short of his own they fell, that he chronically underestimated people's workloads. His trick of management being to find obsessed perfectionists like himself who worked incessantly in making ethical decisions. If you're not sure if something is right or wrong, consider whether you'd want it reported in the morning paper. He, Warren Buffett, was a likable boss who never lost his temper, never changed his money capriciously, never said a rude word to anyone, never berated or criticized his employees, didn't second-guess people on their work and let them do their jobs without interference. He also operated on the assumption that if someone was smart, they could do anything. I don't get into fights just to get in fights. Buffett also thought in black and white terms about honesty. He had no tolerance for liars and cheaters. Lose money for the firm and I will be understanding. Lose a shred of reputation for the firm and I will be ruthless. I was at my best at giving financial advice when I was 21 years old and people weren't listening to me. I could have gotten up there and said the most brilliant things and not very much attention would have been paid to me. And now I can say the dumbest things in the world and in a fair number of people think there's some great hidden meaning to it or something. It is unclear how many people at the table understood focus as Buffett lived that word. This kind of innate focus couldn't be emulated. It meant the intensity that is the price of excellence. It meant the discipline and passionate perfectionism that made Thomas Edison the quintessential American inventor, Walt Disney the king of family entertainment, and James Brown the godfather of soul. It meant single-minded obsession was an ideal. Buffett's institutional imperative, the tendency for companies to engage in activity for its own sake and to copy their peers instead of trying to stay ahead of them. Munger often attributed much of Buffett's success to the fact that he was a learning machine. Their common intellect, interest, and ways of thinking gave them considerable common ground. They shared the same intensity. Andrew Carnegie's stance on philanthropy. He who dies rich dies disgraced. The people who say, I did it all myself, and think of themselves as Horato Alga. Believe me, they'd bid more to be in the United States than in Bangladesh. That's the ovarian lottery. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Rule number three, don't go into debt. Let's say that when I turned 16, a genie had appeared to me and that genie said, Warren, I'm going to give you the car of your choice. It'd be here tomorrow morning with a big bow tied on it. Brand new and it's all yours. Having heard all the genie's stories, I would say, what's the catch? And the genie would answer, there's only one catch. This is the last car you're ever going to get in your life. So it's got to last a lifetime. If that had happened, I would have picked out that car. But can you imagine, knowing it had to last a lifetime, what I would do with it? I would read the manual about five times. I would always keep it garaged. If there was the least little dent or scratch, I'd have it fixed right away because I wouldn't want it rusting. I would baby that car because it would have to last a lifetime. That's exactly the position you are in concerning your mind and body. You only get one mind and one body, and it's got to last a lifetime. Now, it's very easy to let them ride for many years, but if you don't take care of that mind and body, they'll be in wreck 40 years later, just like that car would be. It's what you do right now that determines how your mind and body will operate 10, 20, and 30 years from now. 
People ask me where they should go to work, and I always tell them to go to work for whom they admire the most. It's crazy to take little in-between jobs just because they look good on your resume. That's like saving sex for your old age. Do what you love and work for whom you admire the most, and you'd be giving yourself the best chance in life you can. You'd get very rich if you thought of yourself as having a card with only 20 punches in a lifetime, and every financial decision used up one punch. You'd resist a temptation to dabble, you'd make more good decisions, and you'd make more big decisions. He ran his life on 20 punches too. With as little flirting as he could arrange, same house, same wife for 50 years, same asterisk on Farm Here Street, no desire to buy and sell real estate, art, cars, tokens of wealth, no jumping from city to city or career to career. When he gave somebody a punch on his card, they became a part of him, and that decision was permanent. Cash combined with courage in a crisis is priceless. As a request for his time grew, his view that commitments are scarce and his natural inclination to conserve energy saved him from succumbing to the flattery of being in demand. If he added something to his schedule, he discarded something else. He never rushed. His friends could pick up the phone and call him whenever he liked. He kept his phone calls warm-hearted and short. When he was ready to stop talking, the conversation simply died. The kind of friends he had didn't abuse the privilege. While he had many found acquaintances, he added true friends only at intervals of years. The ideal business is one that earns very high returns on capital and that keeps using lots of capital at those high returns. That becomes a compounding machine. So if you had your choice, if you could put $100 million into a business that earns 20% on that capital, $20 million ideally, it will be able to earn 20% on $100 20 million the following year and 140 million the following year and so on you could keep redeploying capital at those same returns over time but there are very 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 few businesses like that we can move that money around from those businesses to buy more businesses basically when you get to my age you'll really measure your success in life by how many of the people you want to have love you actually do love you I know people who have a lot of money and they get testimonial dinners and they get hospital wings named after them. But the truth is that nobody in the world loves them. If you get to my age in life and nobody thinks well of you, I don't care how big your bank account is, your life is a disaster. That's the ultimate test of how you lived your life. The trouble with love is that you can't buy it. You can buy sex. You can buy testimonial dinners. You can buy pamphlets that say how wonderful you are. But the only way to get love is to be lovable. It's very irritating if you have a lot of money. You'd like to think you could write a check. I'd buy a million dollars worth of love. But it doesn't work that way. The more you give love away, the more you get. Charlie Munker. Invert, always invert. Turn a situation or problem upside down. Look at it backward. What's in it for the other guy? What happens if all our plans go wrong? Where don't we want to go? And how do you get there? Instead of looking for success, make a list of how to fail instead. Through sloth, envy, resentment, self-pity, entitlement, all the mental habits of self-defeat. Avoid those qualities and you will succeed. Tell me where I'm going to die, that is, so I don't go there. If you go from the first floor to the 100th floor of the building and then go back to the 98th, you'll feel worse than if you'd gone from the first to the second. You know. 
but you've got to fight that feeling because you're still on the 98th floor. You absolutely never want to be in a position where tomorrow morning you have to depend on the kindness of strangers in the financial world. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I never want to have to come up with a billion dollars tomorrow morning. Well, a billion I could, but any significant amount, because you just cannot be sure of anything. You have to think about things that never happened before. You always want to have plenty of money around. That passion had led him to study a universe of thousands of stocks and made him burrow into libraries and basements for records nobody else troubled to get. He sat up nights studying hundreds of thousands of numbers that would glaze anyone else's eyes. He read every word of several newspapers each morning and sucked down Wall Street journals like his morning Pepsi, then Coke. He dropped in on companies spending hours talking about barrels with the women who ran the outpost of Grief Brothers. Cooperage or auto insurance with Lorimer Davison. He read magazines like the Progressive Grocer to learn how to stock a meat department. He stuffed the backseat of his car with Moody's manuals and ledgers on his honeymoon. He spent monies reading old newspapers dating back a century to learn the cycles of business, the history of Wall Street, the history of capitalism, the history of modern corporation. He followed the world of politics intensely and recognized how it affected businesses. He analyzed economic statistics until he had a deep understanding of what they signified. Since childhood, he had read every biography he could find on people who he admired, looking for the lessons he could learn from their lives. He attached himself to everyone he could help him and coattailed anyone he could find who was smart. He ruled out paying attention to almost anything but business, art, literature, science, travel, architecture, so he could focus on his passion. He defined a circle of competence to avoid making mistakes. To limit risk, he never used any significant amount of debt. He never stopped thinking about business. What made a good business? What made a bad business? How they competed? What made customers loyal to one versus another? He had unusual way of turning problems around in his head, which gave him insights nobody else had. He developed a network of people who, for the sake of his friendship, as well as his sager city, not only helped him, but also stayed out of his way when he wanted them to. In hard times or easy, he never stopped thinking about ways to make money. All in all, this energy intensity became the motor that powered his innate intelligence, temperament, and skills. And that's a wrap on the book summary of The Snowball, Warren Buffett and the Business of Life. Check out our YouTube channel with over 500 video book summaries uploaded previously. Like the video, comment what you think, and if there's a book you want to do a summary on, comment below. Check out our website, bestbookbits.com, where you'll find the written summary with over 500 written book summaries where you can download in the PDF and read offline. If you want to get updated weekly book summaries, pop your email in the link below to sign up to the email marketing list to get the latest book summaries. If you're into the audio podcast, check out us on Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast, and Mixcloud.com. Follow us on Instagram for daily motivational quotes and book summaries. Hope you got something from this. Go out there. Have an amazing day. Take care. Bye-bye now.